Well, good morning, Rolling Hills. It's great to have you here today as we um, continue our series on peace of mind. Um, this is uh, week three of four weeks, and so today we're going to get some really some, a lot of great practical wisdom on uh, handling anxiety. And then next week we're going to um, look at burnout, how to do it. No. Um, uh, yeah, so I'll share my personal journey of, you know, finding out how you do it um, and how to avoid it. Uh, when we were planning this series, I mean, it, I was just really excited about it for a lot of reasons, one of which is um, there's just nowhere we can go and talk for people very long where the subject of mental health is not talked about and it's becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue in our society and, and uh, with the pandemic that just, you know, it put mental health issues on steroids and, and uh, so we were excited to say, okay, well, you know, what, how does God speak into mental health? And as we were planning it, it became obvious to me that, man, we're, as a faith family, we're very fortunate to have a lot of people who are um, health providers, and uh, many of those focus on our mental health. And so I asked a couple if they would be willing to engage with us in this. And so last week we had Tara Matson, and this week um, we have another just, well, I was her youth pastor. So it, it goes back a little ways, but um, Dr. Kristen Valerius uh, has been part of this faith family almost her whole life, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a second, but um, she got her PhD from the University of Cincinnati. She worked in research and um, clinical practice in different hospitals. A lot of that work was with children. She's worked with all ages, and, uh, and now she is... Um, she executive director of uh, Sunstrom Clinical Services, where she oversees 17 providers and also helps train, um, train up doctrinal students in psychology. Um, she, those 17 providers provide um, really a whole range of services to different places in life um, from children on up. Um, she's married also to a licensed counselor and uh, which she says her children don't have a chance. Yeah, it's, it's like that can be an intimidating table to sit at at night. But uh, she has, um, her husband's Keith and uh, who's a, her family is a part of our family here at Rolling Hills. Um, she has three great kids, Jack, Emma, and Joey. And um, one of the things about, if, if you've been impacted by the ministries of Rolling Hills over the years, then um, part of that is due to um, Kristen's family. Her mom and dad helped begin Rolling Hills, launch Rolling Hills with a couple other um, couples back in the days. And so Paul and Judy uh, is one of the fam founding families. And so that's why Kristen has been basically a life member um, of, of our family. And on top of all the things that she's doing as she engages with people um, in her practice, she also finds time um, every week to volunteer with our high schoolers. And uh, I know Pastor Jess is just eternally grateful for uh, just the wisdom and stability that she brings. And so Kristen is a follower of Jesus. She loves the Lord. 
She's passionate to follow and to know his word. And she has um, given herself uh, and dedicated herself to learning how she can help people um, live life as her creator intended. And so today we're in for um, really a lot of wisdom and a lot of practical help as Kristen comes. So welcome with me, Kristen Valerius. Well, Bill, Bill left out the part of my bio where I was kind of an intense handful, bit on the bossy side, managing my ADHD. So if you get no other points take home from this, parents who are worried about your kids being a bit much now, they'll invite you back in the future, apparently. So it'll all work out. Um, so a while back, I was working with a young mom. I had seen her actually a phase before when she was in her late high school years. And she came to see me because she was experiencing kind of a, a resurgence of, of anxiety herself now. And she was a new mom, had a baby. And in between our treatment, she had um, been in a, a, she had been rear-ended, been in an accident, some other things that were kind of increasing her anxiety. So as she worried about having her little baby, she was feeling like she wasn't actually being as safe of a driver because she was so worried and scanning and, and checking her rearview mirror all the time for fear that she would be rear-ended. So we were working on things this one particular session, talked about how to manage her stress and anxiety when in the car and what to do about constantly checking her rear view and checking doesn't stop what happens and just working through what she actually cares about, kind of grounding her in her care for her, her little one in the back seat. And she went on her way and I went back to my desk and did some paperwork and worked on some things and then was gonna head out to lunch about an hour later. And this was when we were located over by Clackamas Town Center. If you know that 82nd road, it's like just a fire hose of cars and you've got to pull out and get your spot. And so I'm in the queue of cars and the, I see that the, the person in front of me has got a slot and right behind them there's gonna be another slot and then a bunch of traffic. So I'm getting ready and you've got to like just dive in. You know, you just got to own it and take it. So the person in front of me goes to go and I get up there to take my spot and they stop and I boop. Rear-end them. And I thought, what are the odds that I would rear-end someone right after I'd done that session? That's terrible. Pull over, hadn't done much damage. It was a gentle tap. And uh, pull over to exchange insurance information. And out of the car gets my client. <laughs> no joke, I had rear-ended my client on the exact day that we were talking about fear of worry about being rear-ended. <laughs> now, she had anxiety about what she thought could happen. I definitely did not think when I was leaving that it was possible that I was gonna do that. I had fear in that moment about, oh my gosh, how do I face this? And there were like a thousand things I wanted to do, duck behind the steering wheel, just take off and keep driving, fall at her feet and beg for forgiveness. I got out of the car and she kindly said, well, at least I know nothing bad happened. <laughs> so it was lovely. So anxiety is gonna be the topic of what we cover today. And I work with young kids on up to probably early college age, but I do a lot of work with parents too. So I spend a lot of time with adults and helping them 
with their journey and feel confident in what they're doing. And over the years, <clears throat> anxiety is probably one of the most common things that I work with. That's not too hard if you work with emotions because anxiety disorders are the most common disorder that we have. Compared to, say, depression, where we have you know, 16, 17 million people diagnosed with, an with uh, depression, we have 60 million diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Over the course of your lifetime, you have about a 30% chance of developing an anxiety disorder at some point for a time. So it's so common, but statistics like that can even be misleading because 100% of us struggle with anxiety, including anxiety that can be really torturous, but maybe isn't an anxiety disorder. Anxiety is universal and normal, but it can be really debilitating. And what I've noticed in my clinical practice is over the last like seven years, started before the pandemic, but increasingly the last few, is this real desire, or different way of talking about it. People aren't just coming in saying, I wanna understand why I'm anxious, or I wanna understand how to work with my anxiety. They're talking more like, I don't want to feel anxiety. I just wanna get rid of it. I wanna do whatever I can to avoid anything that's making me feel anxious. And, and that shift actually prevents us from doing many of the things that will actually help make our anxiety better. So it becomes a little bit problematic. A psychologist named Tracy Dennis Tawari, she's written a wonderful book called Future Tense. And it says anxiety can be hard, disruptive, sometimes terrifying, and at the same time, it can be an ally, a benefit, and a source of ingenuity. No matter what the cause, stressors, sometimes even a history of trauma, very real burdens and concerns and, and difficulties, being able to cope with anxiety differently is always part of the solution. But to shift our perspective and help our coping go better, we'll have to break down and rebuild our story of this emotion. The problem isn't anxiety and how bad it feels. The problem is that our beliefs and actions around anxiety stop us from believing that we can manage it and even use it to our advantage. That's what we're gonna kind of work through today, is rebuilding our story of anxiety. To do that, we're gonna do a few different things. In talking about anxiety and some of the ways that our story gets off, it can run the risk of sounding as if like, I'm saying anxiety is no big deal, or that anxiety isn't a real thing and you don't need to go seek professional treatment, which would be a little bit self-sabotaging given that that's literally how I make my living. There's good reasons to get help, and sometimes it's not even because you think you have a profound disorder, but you just want to manage it. People will say, I don't know if I should really be in here, if I really have a diagnosis. I say, if it's bothering you, let's work. Let's do something to make this feel better. I'm not, I certainly don't want anyone to hear my words about anxiety to trivialize it or minimize it or your history of trauma. Tara talked about suffering and trauma last time, and, and trauma is about those things that have happened already that we can still struggle with, and sometimes it makes our response 
our anxiety response worse. Anxiety is more about what's going to happen. So there's a, this time continuum about how things show up for us. So I'm gonna talk about some of the healthy things in anxiety, but I'm gonna start with where our story has gotten off. If this is my healthy zone, this is my swampy zone. This is where we get kind of stuck in our thinking. And so we're gonna first talk about what is this swamp zone? What are the ways that our thinking or our story gets off? And then we're gonna come back to saying, what is, health, what is a healthy lens regarding anxiety? And what can we do about it? Okay, so rebuild our story by saying, what's our swampy thinking? Identify the wonder and the magic of anxiety, and then learn tools to leverage anxiety. So to really anchor that, I wanna start with an analogy. Let's say I'm working in the garden or I was working out and Keith took this picture of me shortly after a workout. <laughs> I don't know if I should be grateful or offended that you laughed at that. But I'm, I'm sore from working out, I have some sore muscles. But if I interpret that soreness as a broken shoulder, or a broken arm, then the t what I do for it will actually make it worse. I will become less resilient and able to avoid injury, and I will have missed out on some activities that are actually really helpful, really productive and useful in my life. It's not that broken arms don't exist, it's not that there's not a treatment for broken arms, but it's just that sore muscles is not a broken arm. And sometimes with anxiety, we get into that spot where we think what I'm feeling is broken or wrong or abnormal or I don't wanna feel it. I'm just gonna cut out anything that makes me uncomfortable or struggle. That's swampy and seeing that it's okay, this, this discomfort is telling me something and I can learn to use it. That's what we're gonna be about today. So let's talk about that swampy thinking. Some of it shows up, they can almost even show up in opposite ways. Sometimes it'll be about avoiding anything and everything that would make me uncomfortable. So school's really stressful, I'm gonna drop the class. Uh, I worry about all the things out there in this world that could harm my kid, so I'm gonna walk them home from the bus forever so that they don't ever get a chance for, to be independent or make a bad choice on the way home from the bus stop. Or, gosh, the world is going off its rails, so I'm just gonna stay in my little bubble and be around people who think like me and don't challenge or make me uncomfortable because I just don't like how that feels. Those are some ways we can avoid the normal process of learning to hold our discomfort or our sore muscles. My discipline and much of the medical field has contributed to this. We have talked about anxiety with this disease model, like it's an illness to be treated or a tumor to be taken out and um, we, there's lots of treatment um, that has led to our benzo crisis and opioid crisis and it's not that there isn't really healthy medications for anxiety and ways to treat that medically, 
but those crises and some of those ways, those medicines eliminate that distress so quickly that that's why they've been utilized to excess and with so much problem. We also have perfectionism. I'm just gonna work hard, be hard, be good. I'm judged by my worth, my value, my productivity, and if I just am perfect, then I don't have to worry that I won't be enough or that I'll experience discomfort from imperfection or letting people down. We have the, the cheerleading, it'll be okay, don't worry about it. Anybody ever heard that? Helped no one ever. And then we have the, I just wanna kind of see the good side. Don't tell me any of the messy drama, I don't wanna hear that stuff. I just wanna think that everything's happy. These are all ways of avoiding the discomfort of this normal human process of anxiety. One of the challenges is the way that anxiety shows up. It primes your brain to look for things that are causing uncertainty and distress. And the more anxious you feel, the more likely you are to pay attention to negative inputs around you, to go looking for them. There's even a name for this, doom scrolling. If you haven't heard of it, that's the, I think I have a brain tumor, so what am I gonna go do? Look up brain tumors on the internet, read stories about brain tumors. Suddenly the woman who had a cut on her finger finds out that she had a brain tumor. Or I read about the things in society that are just heartbreaking to me and bad, and I talk to my friends, and we're always getting stuck and thinking and bathing ourselves in the risk. You put someone under a stressful situation and watch where they put their attention and their eye gaze. For example, on a sea of faces, they will spend more time looking at the negative faces and they'll spend almost no time on happy faces. Now imagine, I'm, on this, I'm doing this talk, I didn't have any anxiety preparing this talk, trust me. No, lots, plenty. But if I'm doing this talk and I look out in the audience and I find the frowny face and the grumpy face and the not getting it face, and those are the only faces that I look for, not the smiling, nodding, and encouraging faces, I'm gonna start experiencing this as even more and more stressful. And this is what happens sometimes. And our brain actually has this mechanism that makes us think that we just really accomplished something, like the feeling you get when you check off your to-do list. Oh, I got all this done. That's the, the feeling that can be created, the chemicals that happen in your brain when you've just spent a lot of time worrying. Like your brain's like, you're welcome. We just did a lot of work, didn't we? And yet nothing changes. That's kind of that swampy thinking. Another way is some things we specifically do in the church. We over-spiritualize anxiety and we misinterpret some things in scripture and then we speak truth but it gets mixed in with some of this swampy stuff and sometimes we don't even notice and so we're saying things, the amount of people that I've worked with who say my well-intended faith-filled person, sometimes they're you know, a, a parent or a partner or a friend says, just trust God. And these swampy things come in because some of the most trusting people I know really struggle with anxiety. So as I was preparing this talk, I did a lot of work on one of my very favorite verses, Philippians 4, 
talking about do not be anxious for anything but present your request to God. And I went to some of the commentaries. This wasn't a particularly fringy or weird commentary, normal, balanced, but the article was entitled The True Meaning of Philippians 4. And in it, you'll see that there are some truths, some, some well-intended, helpful messages, but some swampy thinking has gotten mixed in there. It says, the statement, be anxious for nothing, is a command from the word of God. When God said be, he has empowered us to do that which he commands. Anxiety is a demonstration of a lack of faith in his word. We encourage not to worry about anything, but rather to pray boldly about everything and present our requests humbly before him, thanking him for what he's done. A quick antidote for anxiety is our weapon of faith. This weapon of faith has to be utilized as we approach God. How do we discard our anxious thoughts? The answer is simple. By the prayer of faith with thanksgiving, this kind of prayer is what a true believer will pray in all circumstances. Now there is truth there. There is some swampy thinking in saying that this, that someone who is struggling with anxiety is just has a faith problem and that we can simply change it by, by prayer and it'll be all done. Or even by saying it's a command. This is not a command to not be anxious. In fact, we're gonna drill down into that word anxious, it's merimanao or merimana, depending on the kind of tense and application of the word, but it means to take up thought. It is closer to the idea of fretfulness or obsession, angst. In psychology, we call it perseveration, right? It's not about don't be anxious. It's saying when you stew and perseverate and give your effort towards that, circle, 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 that doesn't help you. But it's not actually a command. In, in, there are other places where it's talked about, the passage where it talks about the, the birds of the sky and the lilies of the field and how much that's talking about Merimanao. When Jesus talks to Martha and says, Martha, you have so many thoughts about how to care for me, so much merriment but I just need you to be with me. But in another passage, it says, cast your cares on me, same word. It's not saying don't ever have them, it's saying when you have them, cast them on me because I care about you. And in the wisdom of scripture, this merimanao, this worry fretfulness that we can do, the same process actually has a good side. It's used positively in scripture. Paul talks about having merimanao for all of the churches. And in the passage where it talks about us being uh, all members of one body, it says we should have merimanao for one another rather than disagreements. We should have care and concern and take up thoughts about one another. And so there is a good side of Merimanao. There is a good side of anxiety. And when I read things like that, that are profound in the deep wisdom of scripture, and then I hear my, my secular science profession identifying the same things, I just love that blows my mind where I see God showing up in a 2,000-year-old document like that. 
So let's talk about how anxiety works. Let's redeem that story and think of it as a wonder. I see anxiety as one of the most miraculous emotions and one of the most helpful emotions that we have. When we are anxious, let's put a few definitions. Often people will interchange anxiety and fear. And we sometimes talk about, even in my discipline, that it's like your fear system gone wrong, right? It's your fight or flight going off at the wrong moment. It's kind of broken in that illness model as opposed to that wellness model, sore muscle broken arm, swampiness. But fear is actually the immediate, certain response to a real danger in the present moment that generally ends when the threat is over. I had a fear response when I hit that car. But after it was done, I wasn't still fretting about it. She was having an anxiety response about the possibility that something could happen in the future to her precious child the way she had experienced in the past. That trauma influenced how she saw the future. But fear and anxiety are not exactly the same thing. They're not interchangeable. We say, I'm afraid that, and we mean I'm concerned that, right? Almost always with anxiety, there's something you hope will go right. There is something in the future that you want to see, but you've predicted and forecasted all the different ways that something could go wrong. And so your energy gets focused on all those possibilities of how things go wrong, and we maybe sometimes even spend less time on what we hope will go right, but because of how it works in our brains, how it works in our bodies, anxiety is closer to hope and excitement than it is to fear in terms of the physiology in your body. So how does that work, that physiology in our body? Well, first, we feel the uncertainty. The, the worry that we have is generally related to not being certain how something's gonna happen. When you look at brain patterns of activation and you look at the flood of cascade of what happens in your body, we don't like messing up and doing things wrong. We really don't like being uncertain. That turn lights us up we are wired to try and find certainty. So when we feel uncertain about something, especially something we care about or value, and sometimes it seems small and trivial, but we often value things like, I wanna have friends, I wanna be liked, I wanna do a good job, and those things matter to us, so then we worry about how that will turn out because we're uncertain. So anxiety is our body's way of managing uncertainty. Uncertainty is more risky to our well-being than known if I know where the good or bad is. So we have this whole response to uncertainty. Our system floods with adrenaline. Adrenaline is like the um, floodlight, right? Something's coming through, pay attention, look out there, see what it is, find out. And adrenaline causes a cascade of experiences across your body that feel terrible, 
They'll send someone to the ER thinking they're having a heart attack from adrenaline and the panic. That's our alert, right? But it's gotta feel uncomfortable in order to do its job, in order to get us to notice it and to give us the motivation and drive to solve the problem, to work towards the goal and the purpose of what we care about. Building relationships, doing a good job, being safe, taking care of our loved ones. So it's, it's gotta feel crummy. And if we walk around saying, I don't ever wanna have a sore muscle, I don't wanna ever feel that, we actually weaken our ability to handle it. So your floodlight comes, you have alerting alarm, and then dopamine hits. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter in your brain that's responsible for focused attention. If you have way too much dopamine, you will be hyper-focused on it. Dopamine's involved even in addiction. That's why there's such a cycle of wanting and focusing on that. But it gives us motivation. It is essential for effort towards something. So that floodlight alerts us, and then our spotlight or our flashlight, right? It shines on, look at this, put your effort, pay attention, do something with it. And then it also releases oxytocin, which oxytocin is our feel-good bonding hormone. It's the mom and the baby nursing, it's close intimacy. And what that's all about is when there is uncertainty, we are primed to need our tribe, need our people, need our support, need our community. We don't wanna just be out there and uncertain what we're gonna face. So when we can connect, with people, we can ease our way of managing it. We can help our little computer system that simulates all these possible things happening. So if we understand that function, this healthy function of anxiety, we can see that actually anxiety is responsible, is involved in all of our good things in life, creativity, ingenuity, growth, acquiring new skills, expanding your mindset and your knowledge and awareness, none of that happens without anxiety. Without anxiety, this would have been a really different talk. Anxiety did its job to help me work on refining so I could get to a goal of what I was hoping to talk to you about. Anxiety can be so useful to us if we learn how to work with it. So, I wanna, before we talk about what to do about it, I wanna speak for a moment to parents. As a parent, we get like the double whammy, right? Like we feel anxious, we feel concerned and worried, and then our kids are anxious and concerned and worried, and then we're worried that they're worried, and it's a double dose. Can I get an amen? Anyone else feel this? Right? So we tend to want to help them out of their anxiety and make them feel better and keep them from suffering. That's our like instinctual job. But in doing, if we have a mentality of we don't ever wanna feel the discomfort, sometimes we can eliminate the growth that they need to learn how to hold the hard things in life. And we're all concerned about our teen mental health crisis and how they're suffering and we talk about this generation is the most anxious generation and they seem fragile to us. But sometimes that's because we've been insulating them and buffering them and making things 
easy and not wanting them to suffer out of love and concern. So Dr. Tawari said, I just love this quote. She says, parents, when your kids struggle with anxiety, they are also struggling with hope, persistence, caring, and frankly, just the messy work of being human. Our job isn't to take away these feelings, it's to help them see that going through it all makes them stronger. She talks about the idea of anti-fragility, that like the immune system is an anti-fragile system. The more you face, the better able you are to stay healthy. If you've never been around a germ, you're going to get sick a lot. That the more of that working out and sore muscles, the more I'm able to hold and handle and work through. And if I just don't ever work out, I actually get more vulnerable and fragile. It's hard to know how to balance that. It's hard to know how to do that, but it especially is hard if we have a mindset, this swampy, that we can't feel it, that we're not supposed to have that normal, yucky, alerting response, and then this hyper-focusing on the what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. So that leads us, well, what can we do about this? How do we manage it? A lot of times, the tools given for anxiety are so focused on the adrenaline side, relaxation, breathing, imagine someplace peaceful, um, maybe some self-care, give yourself more time, get a mani-pedi, don't be rushing around. Those are all wonderful. It's not that they don't help, it's not that they don't do any good, but sometimes there feels like there's something lacking to those because you relax yourself and come right back because it doesn't address that dopamine and that oxytocin. So the dopamine is gonna focus us, right? It's that spotlight. Well, when we run our simulations and we think, I hope this will happen, I care about this, then sometimes we don't know our thoughts get focused though on all the things that could go wrong instead of focusing on how our care and our values and what we can do could go right. If you say, I'm really worried that this could happen with a friend if they come over to my house. I don't want this to happen or that to happen. And if you shift that floodlight or that spotlight to what do you care about? I care about my friend having a good time. Okay, what do we have control over there? How can we connect to that? For if I, I had a, a gal who came in and was like, there's no one thing I'm worried about. There's no one concern I have. I just feel this general sense of doom, like something bad that is gonna happen that I don't know. I just feel on edge constantly. And what we realized is she was going through a stage of life transition as a young adult and she was being kind of entrepreneurial in her career, so she wasn't exactly sure she was uncertain how to establish herself there. And so there wasn't a fear that, or worry that this or that was going to happen, but this general stage showed what she cared about, what her purpose was, what her values were, was this passion and this vision she had and her hard work and, and connecting and networking. And so we were able to shift that message 
of doom from an alert of caring. And research shows that when you affirm things that you value, that you care about, that you wanna see happen, and I don't mean like some big global life purpose that in, for 20 years you're gonna say, my central mission is this. I mean you care about being a good friend and being well-liked. You care about being successful. I care about being a steward of this time this morning and honoring God's word and honoring Bill's invitation. If, when we connect to those reasons for why we're feeling the discomfort, research shows that your stress response reduces in your body and you increase concentration and learning and it actually improves physical health as well. So that affirming of your, your values or your intentions actually has a buffering effect when we can focus that dopamine spotlight on what we care about. We can also, because it's this simulation machine running what could happen, we can focus on what do we know? Where do we have certainty? What do I know from history? When I've taken that test or done that presentation at work or had that tough conversation, has it always turned out bad or does that just feel like it could be? And focus that spotlight on what is likely to happen, what history has shown us will happen in your own lived experience, right? That we can focus that on our certainty and what's likely. And then anxiety, as it runs these simulations, it tells you, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, because that could be the outcome and we want this. So it tells you, don't raise your hand in class because you might say something wrong. It tells you, don't go for that promotion. It tells you, don't assert yourself for your needs. They'll be furious at you. Don't let your kid go. Do the thing. And so often, if we can break that down into something, maybe I can't give the whole presentation at work, but maybe I can just volunteer a comment when I'm usually more likely to wait to be asked. Maybe instead of waiting for all my thoughts to be gathered, I can say, I'm not really sure what I'm thinking about that, but I'm having a lot of emotions, and I can risk sharing that vulnerability. It's about kind of doing the opposite of what the spotlight on the what-ifs that are negative would say so I can begin building more certainty and practice with what I wanna see happen. And then leveraging a focus on things that are practical that just take care of this lovely machine we've been given. I talk about it as sleep, movement, nature, and nourish. How we need our sleep deeply affects how our stress response system and how all these chemicals get released in your brain. And getting movement, for some of us, exercise is a huge piece of managing anxiety. For others, it won't be full-on exercise, but it will be attention, focus, effort on movement. And just getting outside and connecting outside is huge. You'll see in the next slide, it connects us. Nature so often connects us with beauty and wonder and has a natural healing effect for that uncertain response. So, and then nourish what we feed ourselves, what we take in, whether or not we push ourselves past the limit, hydrate, eat good stuff, 
all that. So we can leverage that dopamine side, but we also wanna leverage that searchlight, that oxytocin, the desire to connect, to connect with people, with God, with things that are bigger than ourselves. Um, so Colton, Pastor Bill Colton talked about faith, family, friends, and physicians, right? His message was about that searchlight, about seeking out the connection. And when we pray, that releases some of the same oxytocins as when you're sitting with a, a friend and talking over coffee, right? We can l- rely on that relationship with God and that's so mysterious and wonderful. We connect with our community, but we also can connect with the specific things that are around us, things we can touch and feel, be aware of. We think about our presence, you just let it wash over you, the house you're in or apartment or office room, the context that you've been placed in, you're in a network of community and you just let it wash over you like a river. Prayer shows the same kind of effects as those mindfulness tools. And then connecting with what I call the expansive emotions, right? Anxiety narrows your focus and drives you to connect, to to finish this loop of oxytocin. And when we can expand our lens a little bit and sit in awe and wonder, gratitude, noticing all the things, even though we're worried that we are grateful for, humor. It is so hard to be fretful when you're laughing, when something's funny. So being silly and playful, um, looking at beauty, being creative, serving others, giving, these things are expansive emotions and they buffer against the burden that we can feel from the natural wear and tear of uncertain living. And then finally, work with someone. Work, use meds. There are safe and helpful meds to be able to use if your system is producing more of this than is helpful. And you can go see someone as that like wellness coach, right? Your, your hype person, your person that can take what is, feels like fear, what is worry, and when it's anchored to values, worry becomes courage and bravery right? And so work with someone, either professionally or just a friend who can help encourage you to do some of these things. So before I end today, I am going to speak over you a benediction of Philippians 4. And I just really am impressed when I look at the scripture and what it's saying, how much it lines up with some of the conventional and secular wisdom. That's not a surprise if God made us, he gets it. So it's in there, but it's it's something to me that testifies to the truth of what we believe when I recognize it. So I'm gonna sort of pray over you as our final words, kind of a, a everyday reinterpretation of that Philippians 4, and then we'll wrap up. My friends, Always find reasons to be joyful in God. I'll say this again, rejoice. Let everyone see 
that you are considerate and gentle in your actions, remember, we can be certain of our reunion with God. Do not burden yourself by being so fretful about things. Instead, talk to God about what you long for and what you need and thank him for all the things God has already done. Then you will find God's peace begins to show up in ways that go beyond the logic of a situation or your limited understanding. His peace will stand like a guard over your heart and your mind. Work to follow his example. Finally, my friends that are so dear to me, focus your thoughts. Focus on what is true and honorable and accurate and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep practicing all that you have learned from Paul and our spiritual teachers. Then you will be centered and sense the nearness of your God of peace. Amen.